0: Wessex LNCs supporting you and your practice. So welcome everybody, my name's Louise Greenwood and I'm Director of Education for Wessex LNCs and this is one, another one of our Practice Manager webinars um, on a Friday today um, for various different reasons so hopefully that'll help some of you who we know find Wednesday's hard um, but hopefully um, this is the we recorded it anyway so do just listen afterwards if it's a block to attend um, in person. I'm delighted to be joined by Michelle Lombardi, Hi, Michelle, and she's Director of Primary Care for the SOMC's, and I'll be showing some information later. I'm particularly pleased today to welcome Andy Freeman, um, who is an ex-Unison regional organiser and now a mediator. And we've asked Andy along because we're very conscious that the collective action and things are happening at the moment that possibly a lot of participants might not be familiar with. So we're going to talk to Andy about the role of the rep and just at the moment, collective action, what you can say to staff, what you can't say to staff. He's got some slides to go through, but also would it really encourage um, you to just um put anything in the chat that you are interested in as you go. And just those of you who are a little bit earlier coming on the call, you may have heard Andy say a few sort of top tips for how to, um, to work with uh, organisations or with you, with, them, with unions in particular. So I'm going to shut up and share my screen and say thank you very much, Andy, be very much look forward to
1: hearing from you okay thanks louise uh yeah as, as louise said i've uh was a regional uh, organizer for unison for uh, uh just about 20 years and i've worked with health services in the past including uh working with uh, with practice managers in gp surgeries and hospital trusts and uh, although Part of this webinar is talking about collective action, which I know is happening in the health service and in GP surgeries and practices around the country at the moment. Uh, The reps uh, do a lot more than that, trade union reps, and therefore uh, what we'll talk about is the the role of the reps within your workplaces. Uh, Mainly, I I suggest you would see probably reps for the most time when they uh, tend to support or represent a member of staff who is um, either uh, have a grievance out or a complaint about something uh, regarding their work or they're, unfortunately, uh, being disciplined. I can't count the number of times I've represented somebody. There are far too many. But what I can do is count the number of times that I uh, and the uh, member have have been successful Uh, because those are few and far between. Because if somebody is facing a disciplinary sanction, it's usually because they've done something wrong. It's only when they haven't done something wrong that I've been successful. So I think that's something to, to mark down at the beginning, that uh, most of the things that you will come across with a rep will be representing somebody who's either done something wrong or, or who has a, a genuine complaint. So I'll also talk about, if you can go on to the next slide, uh, Louise, Uh, So what I'm gonna take you through today is the role of uh, trade unions in the workplace, Uh, basically regarding uh, meetings, what I've just been talking about, grievance and disciplinary meetings and the right to be accompanied to those. The role of the TU more broadly, uh, including the role uh, of what they do uh, when there's uh, strike action or an industrial dispute. The role of the trade union rep in meetings that you may or may not have with them. Obviously, uh, industrial action as well, which is very much in the news at the moment. And if we've got time at the end, I'd also like to talk about uh, what are commonly known as off-the-record meetings, or in legal terminology, is without prejudice meetings and protected conversations and there are you may have heard those terms you may not have heard those terms but they can be very useful in resolving uh disputes with individuals uh, and and uh, a collection of individuals uh, uh but if we've got time we'll we'll touch on that at the end so if you can turn to the next slide Right, uh, most people, most managers uh, and certainly practice managers or business managers in, in GP surgeries, I would suggest most you will meet a rep when they are representing uh, some uh, somebody at a disciplinary or at a grievance hearing. Uh, the law is quite clear on the role, the right to be accompanied because uh, people facing a disciplinary or raising a complaint do have the right to be uh, accompanied. Uh, section 10, for the, for those who, who are interested in the law, it's section 10 of the Employment Relations Act 1999. And the legal right is very specific. It's a legal right uh, to be accompanied to any meeting or hearing that can result in disciplinary action. And that's quite specific because there are some meetings you will have with with people, uh, for example, investigation meetings or fact-finding meetings. If something's happened at work, that do not uh, that meeting will not uh, result in in disciplinary action. Uh, so, uh, and also. Um, there's the right to be accompanied when you're raising a grievance with, uh, with the uh, when you've got a complaint about your employment or when a, a member of staff has a complaint. So that's Section 10 of the Employment Act. But the next thing that's on that, the next bullet point is what does your policy say? So you will have in GP practices policies on disciplinary and grievances. And that may give an additional right, your policies themselves may give an additional right for representatives to attend and to support uh, members of staff at uh, disciplinary and grievance uh, investigations rather than the meetings themselves. And, and that's quite important because if it's in your policy then obviously you need to follow it. Your policy may go above and beyond the law. The law is a statutory requirement that at the end of a meeting, if somebody can be disciplined at that meeting, uh, they uh, have the right to be accompanied. But your policies may say something that says, at all formal stages of a grievance or at all formal stages of a disciplinary meeting, Uh, you can be accompanied by a a trade union representative. If your policies say that, then obviously a a trade union representative can be present at uh, an investigation meeting, but they don't have the statutory right to be. That would depend on very much what your policies say. And the policies are not just about Trade unions as well. Uh, The law law actually does allow people to take a work colleague in uh, rather than a a trade union representative. They allow a, a workplace trade union representative and a workplace trade union representative is somebody that's elected in your workplace. Uh, to represent members of a certain union, be that the BMA or, or the RCN, uh, Royal College of Nursing, or, or Unison or GMB or some of the other unions. And um, also it, it allows a trade union official, a paid trade union official, somebody like me in the past who, who was a full-time official for Unison, What the law doesn't allow for is family members to attend uh, on behalf of of somebody, a friend that doesn't work there, or a legal representative like a a solicitor or a lawyer, unless that is specifically allowed within your policies or specifically allowed in, uh, say, a doctor's uh, uh, contract of employment. So again, it's very much you're very much uh, although the law gives a, a, a requirement of what is statutory statutory i can't say that word statutorily required for a uh for accompaniment uh to be accompanied to the meeting it's not necessarily uh the be all and end all now obviously there's things um if a problem, for example, if you have a staff who's particularly stressful and, and is very stressed about going to an investigation meeting, you may want to consider allowing them to bring a, a family member there to be reasonable, but you don't have to. You also could allow a trade union rep to be there for moral support in the investigation meeting, despite your policies uh, not um, agreeing to that. It all depends on the individual circumstances. For example, if the, if the person has a disability, they might want support and it might be a reasonable adjustment to allow some support at uh, something other uh, than uh, a, a, one of the statutory uh, requirements to, to be accompanied. And I think the most important word in the law is the fact that employers and you would be the representative of, of, of the employer meeting the member must act reasonably given the circumstances. And that's why it's a case by case basis. And I would, uh, I would encourage everybody to take that word with them from this meeting and said would it be reasonable to stop this person being represented in this meeting solely because our policies say they don't have the right to be represented at that meeting particularly if that person uh, is going into an investigation where they're quite literally frightened about it it's quite a daunting uh, exercise and and uh, to go through And uh, they may be genuinely suffering from stress and anxiety. In those cases, uh, an employer acting reasonably would say, yes, you can take somebody in in there for moral support, but they don't take part in that meeting. They're just there as a shoulder to lean on, somebody to lean on to help the person through the meeting. The last bullet point on, on that is the ACAS Code of Practice. Now the ACAS code of practice do do a, um, a they do a, an ACAS code of practice on the handling on grievance and disciplinary procedures. Now ACAS stands for uh, I always forget what ACAS stands for. Actually, it's an uh, Advisory Conciliation and Arbitration Service. And basically, they are a government agency that ensures that uh, employers and employees know their rights of what happens in disciplinary grievance. And the ACAS Code of Practice on disciplinary, disciplinary and grievances is, I would say, the Code of Practice is only a few pages long. So I'd say it's essential reading for any manager Uh, wanting to enter into, uh, if you have, if you need to enter into those meetings where you're doing a disciplinary investigation or disciplinary hearing, as many practice managers have to do, I know. And so the ACAS code of practice is really essential reading for you and, and your team, if you like, to, to know what is required of you. Um, Also, the ACAS do produce a guide, which is far more detailed, which actually takes a step-by-step approach to going through a disciplinary procedures or what you should do. They've even got template letters for people to send. If you're not used to sending letters, inviting people to meetings, inviting people to to investigatory meetings or disciplinary meetings. The ACAS Code of Practice coupled with the guide is very useful. The last bullet point on that is questions, but I understand uh, from Louise that uh, nobody, uh, uh, you you can't speak or ask questions, but I will, if you put your questions in the chat, I'm happy to go along to the questions at the end of this. I've got a few more slides to go through where I can actually try and answer them before the webinar ends. So if we can go Um, to the next slide, Louise.
0: I will do. the, the managers on the call were happy to put in their um, questions via the Q&A box, so I will absolutely stop you if there are any questions coming in. So please do do ask okay. or save them in, if you like, and I will go on to the next slide. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Uh, Michelle's very helpfully put the link to the ACAS Code of Practice on Discipline and Grievance Procedure. Thank you for that, Michelle. I appreciate that. And I would en- encourage you to go there, just print it off or, or, or leave it on your computer as a aid memoir of what you should do, because at the end of the day, the ACAS Code of Practice is is a guide for employers to walk you through the system. If, if any of that fails, if you fail to follow the ACAS Code of Practice, if anything does go to tribunal, if you're unfortunate enough to have a, a case at tribunal, a failure to follow the ACAS Code of Practice won't necessarily make, make or break or win or lose a case, But if you did lose a case, the failure to follow the ACAS Code of Practice can increase the award that an employee would get as a result of the failure. It doesn't hinge on the rights or wrongs, but if you're wrong, then failure to follow the ACAS Code of Practice does make a difference in any awards that are given. I've got on now on the gone on to the role of the trade union rep. Now I did put a question, what do you think their role is? Many people, I think uh, we were having a discussion before that most people only come across trade unions, like trade unionists like Mick Lynch from the RMT, RMT, who's been taking the the train uh uh, the uh, train dri- not drivers that's a di- different union but taking the trains on strike but, uh, and you only tend to see trade unions when there's been a failure uh, and there has been on strike and i consider uh, you know a trade union having to go on strike as a failure of the negotiations prior to them having to go on strike because mo- most trade union Uh, representatives and full-time officials and general secretaries will tell you that a strike going on strike and withdrawing your labor although it's legal is absolutely a last resort nobody wants to do it not the member of staff not the trade union rep not the regional officer as i was and not the general secretary it is a it is a result of a failure of all the other things that go before that which is about the negotiation whatever the issue is whether it be pay whether it be uh any other uh, you know uh, employment issues that have, have been subject to negotiations within within a workplace and within your workplaces but mainly the trade union rep Uh, If you have them and if you have what's called a recognition agreement where people uh, from a certain trade union within your practices can uh, elect trade union reps, most of their uh, work will be representing members of staff in meetings uh they may also represent uh, members of staff in management meetings where trade unions are invited along if you're changing policies or if you're if you're you know um Changing the way of working, or you, know, you wanting to change hours, or wanting to change the the rosters that uh, doctors are on, and the and the, the the work that they they do, and looking at changes to job description, things like that. That's when you will get mainly trade unions representing individually their members, and also collectively a group of members. Trade unions also, uh, trade union reps also uh, are involved in organizing Uh, and we're coming on to the next bullet point, which is trade union duties and trade union activities. And there's a very, very uh, distinct difference between the two because I've talked about representing, that's trade union duty. People are allowed to be represented in their workplace if they're a member of a a trade union and you have a a recognition agreement that recognises that trade union. The representation of those members are trade union duties. The uh, representation of those members collectively in management meetings are trade union duties and they are a given time off for under, undertaking those trade union duties and you may may have time off agreements with trade unions for doing undertaking trade union duties. Trade union activities are different. Trade union activities are uh, things like recruiting, organising staff and it's This is what happens outside the workplace. This is a matter for the trade union. So whilst your whilst employers are responsible for allowing uh, reasonable time to do trade union duties for example when representing somebody at a meeting if it's a workplace representative that's going you're not uh, uh, legally obliged to give time off for trade union activities for recruiting um, the printing of leaflets and things like that or doing updates on union websites so there's a very distinct difference between the two but most important for i uh, and I would say this in my experience with working with practice managers the most important thing that a trade union can be for you as a practice manager is a point of contact for you. And uh, because they, they, Uh, On the next, uh, uh, not going on to the next slide yet, but on the next slide, I do talk about trade union reps being helpful. We all see trade union reps on the TV talking about strike action and we're coming on to industrial action next, but they are a useful point of contact for you. And I would encourage any practice manager wanting to have a good relationship with uh, any trade union, whether that be the BMA, the RCN, or uh, Unison, GMB, is to make yourself known to them. They'll make yourself themselves known to you, and have a genuine dialogue with them. You know, drop in every every month or so and uh, have uh, have a meeting, just to, five minutes, just to see if everything's all right, because they can assist you in, in in managing a what can be, uh, no uh, practices since COVID and, and during COVID, have been a really hectic and busy working and stressful working environment. And they can help uh, managers to uh, spot problems and nip things in the bud, i would say. So if we can go on to the next slide... We've talked about investigation meetings uh where reps may be involved in investigation meetings we've talked about uh grievance hearings where reps where reps can be uh, uh, have the right to accompany um, uh, members of staff who raise grievance and obviously at disciplinary hearings but there is Uh, One of the questions I was asked to address is what to do if a rep can't attend meeting. And again, this is the the Employment Relations Act 1996, which also uh, asks um, employers to act reasonably. But if you are wanting to arrange a disciplinary hearing... And the uh, member of staff can't attend that meeting. And the reason they can't attend that meeting is because a rep is not available. And a rep uh, or a, a trade union official does have, I can vouch for them having fairly hectic and busy diaries, like uh, like anybody else who, who works in the health service at the moment. And they may not always be able to attend the meeting. The law, the Employment Relations Act, would allow them to, to postpone one meeting as long as they give you another date within five working days of that postponement. And that's important. Uh, because you do get some occasions where reps uh, won't want to, uh, uh, or even members of staff won't want to go to meetings, you'll get perpetual postponements. I mean, apart from illness and long term illness, which can make make a difference, it's it's something that you need to take into account as far as reasonableness is concerned. Again, now if a rep can't attend a meeting and says, "But I can a me- attend a meeting in seven days." My advice would be to take that and do it in seven days. If a rep postpones twice and can't do it within five days, you've got the choice of proceeding with the meeting because it's the second postponement. So you only have to postpone once and you only have to postpone if... Uh, they give you another date within five working days but again be reasonable if it's seven working days chances are you would agree but if they're saying I can't do it this month and I can't do it for 30 days then you have every right to proceed with that meeting the last but one bullet point on there is can reps be helpful and the simple answer to that is yes I always used to go into meetings saying that uh, uh, when I met a new employer, uh, whether that was a hospital trust, whether that was a GP practice, uh, whether that was a a local council. I used to work in, in local councils. I always used to introduce myself as a problem solver rather than a problem causer. And reps can assist managers and management and, and human resources across the board in identifying problems pretty early on and trying to get them nipped in the bud. It won't always be the case that you can nip things in the bud, but hopefully a rep can can effectively be some uh, an extra pair of eyes and ears. And if you do have a built up, a good working relationship with a trade union rep, or a trade union official, they can be incredibly helpful. When they're on the other side of the table, I'll have to admit they can also be incredibly unhelpful. And that you know, and we need obviously you need to take that into account as well. But uh, reps that have that you've got a good working relationship, be a good professional working relationship, can be incredibly helpful, particularly in helping you with a member of staff that may not be as helpful as the rep because the rep can quite obviously behind the scenes point out to the member of staff that the member of staff is being unreasonable and therefore they need to book their ideas up and, and uh, sort themselves out or they could be on the road to disciplinary action and, and uh, you know, something that the, the member of staff wouldn't wouldn't want. So reps can be very helpful. There's always members of staff that the rep can't be helpful with and uh, you, you and, and I will probably know those members of staff in the past. Uh, communication uh, is key. As I said, keep open uh, an open-door policy with reps and keep regular lines of communication uh, and uh, a two-way process. You can go to them if you've got a problem, see if you can iron out and they can come to you. And that's always worked, always worked for me and it always worked for managers that I managed to work with. So, next uh, slide, please. Right. Industrial action. Everybody in the country has a legal right to join a trade union. I've got the next question is what can you ask? This is in relation to industrial action. You have every right to ask somebody if they are uh, a member of a trade union. You have every right to ask somebody if if you've had a notification that that trade union is going on strike, whether they are going on strike. And the employee has every right not to answer those questions. You can ask, but you may not get an answer. Uh, uh, I can understand the difficulties with with strike action about uh, having to arrange uh, staff, uh, finding out if staff aren't on strike, uh and but and that's a very difficult uh area to be in as a manager, but what you do have the right to know and you should get two weeks' notice of any strike action unless your your surgery or your practice has agreed that seven days' notice is adequate, but the law at the moment as it stands uh uh, demands that a trade union that have undertaken a lawful ballot and I won't get into the legal details of a lawful ballot but if a lawful ballot has taken place the trade union has to tell you the workers the 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 uh, jobs of the workers that are under dispute what the dispute is whether that be pay or ter- other terms and conditions and give you a fortnight's notice of when uh, they would be taking strike strike action. People who do take strike action are not entitled to be paid. Uh, They withdrawing their labour, so they they don't get paid. But I often find out, managers ask me, well, what if somebody's off sick? Uh, What if somebody is booked a holiday? Well, that individual, if they are on strike, has the option to cancel that one day's holiday and uh, not get paid for it and take part in the strike. Even if they may be in Tenerife or even if they're in Spain or, or wherever, they can still take part in the strike action and, and choose not to get paid. If they have booked the holidays first, then they can take, they're, they're perfectly entitled to take their holiday. Uh, if they're off sick, they should be entitled to sick pay as per normal or whatever whatever the uh, the practice agreed. But um, what you must be aware of is the tendency for people that have been balloted uh, for strike action, who then uh, are told by their trade union that go on strike, that then are on sick on the day or book a holiday for that day after they've been told uh, there is strike action. Uh i I've known that many, many times, and that's a difficult thing to manage as a as a practice manager, but people should not be booking holidays on days of strike unless it's already pre-booked and uh, it's already done. And y- use your own discretion as to as to whether somebody going on sick uh, on a uh, on a strike day is um, what I would call genuinely sick or wanting to get paid because they're not being on strike. It's a difficult judgment call sometimes, but you will know uh, the, the members of staff that you, you will work with.
0: Andy, can I just interrupt you, please? You've just had a question in, just for clarification. So when do the actual individuals have to tell the managers By, um, we They know don't have to.
1: They, they, don't, do, they have. don't have to. No. Okay. No.
0: So they don't. So, but the you'll get a letter to say that your employees might be taking
1: action. Well, is, is that is that yes. right? Um, yeah, you'll get the date. Sh- yeah, the date, the date of the strike action and the reason for the strike action and the and the workforce that is taking that strike action, whether that's nurses or junior doctors or ancillary staff or, or, or whatever, they will tell you uh, the, the, the sections of staff that are taking action, yeah. what they're taking action for and what the action is. It might be a half day, it might be a whole day, it might be 24 hours, it might be eight hours. It may be an overtime, man. They may, or maybe what they call a work to rule, which is just working to your job description. It may be even withdrawing goodwill, you know, not working that extra half hour to to cover somebody who's who's gone out. But the in- Individuals themselves do not have to tell any uh, representation of management or the GP practice that they are going on strike. And I know that's frustrating, but yeah. that is the law at the moment.
0: So you're allowed to um, ask them, but they don't have to give you an answer.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're allowed to ask ask any member of yourself. Anyway, you know, uh, you know, are, are you going on strike tomorrow? And they may say yes. I am. Uh, They may say, I don't have to tell you, or they may say, no, I'm not. So the question can be asked, but the question shouldn't be asked with undue pressure either. There shouldn't be, if you don't tell me, I will do this, which is actually breaking employment law. so Uh, so
0: So they can choose just not to pitch up that day.
1: Uh, Yes, if they're if they're covered by the strike action, they're a member of the trade union, and even if they're in a sense, uh, even if they're not a member of the trade union, which some some nurses, uh, you know, they won't be covered for the strike, but they can go on strike. Uh, most people in the room to a strike will join the trade union if they want to, so they're covered, if you like, for the legal strike action, even if they haven't been involved in the ballot. But they, uh, but yeah, the, the idea of strike action is withdrawing your labour. The idea of strike action, in a, in a, in a sense, is, is to make it difficult for the employer. Whatever the rights or wrong of the, of the action being taken, uh, the action of a strike is to be disruptive. Mm-hmm. And if managers knew every single person who was going on strike, every single person who wasn't going on strike, the strike wouldn't be as disruptive. So tra- and trade union reps know that. But you will have a relationship with your staff and you're quite in your rights to ask the question, but the individual employees are quite in their rights to refuse to answer it. Okay. Yeah, the the question at the end, so so they can just not turn up for work. Yes, that's what strike action is: withdrawing your labour. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Andy. Okay, uh, that's. I think that's my last slide.
0: Well, that's really interesting, and I think we came came to the real the nub there, didn't we? Um and, and and this is sort of something that we we have been struggling with. And we had um and as an LMC we've been discussing it within our team, what you can, what you can't say. And it's so you've made it crystal clear, and that has been extremely helpful for us. Um Good. Thank there you. aren't any more questions at the moment. Um so I think you were gonna say, Wait, did you want to mention just something about without prejudice, those sort of unofficial conversations? Oh yeah. I think if you were able to spend a couple of minutes on that, I think, Michelle, if that's all right with you, we'll just spend a couple of minutes on that because I think that's, again, something that possibly practice managers might come across and it would just be helpful to have a little bit of sort of the basics yeah. of
1: that too. Thank you. Uh, absolutely. Uh, without prejudice conversation, basically off-the-record conversations and protected uh, protected conversations are very slightly different, but they're both designed, without prejudice conversation and a protected conversation, are both designed to try and resolve uh, issues that an employer has with an employee. Now, a protected conversation is not dependent on any pre-existing dispute. It could be uh, uh, the employer just wanting to not go down uh, if there if there has been some uh, misconduct or some performance issues that the employer doesn't feel that they want to go down a fairly long-winded performance management scheme, they may open a protected conversation up before they go down that route with a member of staff in order to discuss... T- terminated their employment at the end of the day uh, uh and that's a protected conversation that's protected that uh, protecting law it doesn't protect everything and basically what the protected conversation does is that nothing that you discuss within that protected conversation or a without prejudice meeting uh, they're, they're both the, the the same as far as what's protected um Nothing that's discussed can be used again against the employer in tribunals. So, for example, if a, if a um, members of staff says, yes, I'll have a protected conversation and a practice manager sits down with a receptionist or whoever and says, listen, we don't think it's working out. Uh, we, we've had a number of complaints. We haven't taken them formal yet. and we, we don't really want to, but we don't think it's working out. How do you feel? And that receptionist goes back and says, Well, yeah, I'm not enjoying myself really. And, and the practice manager then says, Well, if we give you your notice pay, are you happy? And we'll give you a reference and what have you. And that can be done, and none of it can be then brought up. Unless there is undue pressure put on, if you don't, for example, if if uh, a manager goes in and says, if you don't do this, agree to this, we will take it down a disciplinary route or we will. So it's the threat side of it that's not protected. I also uh, wouldn't use protected conversations that involve any health and safety issues and any discrimination issues because those are not protected within a protected conversation. For example, if somebody's on long-term sick and it could lead to a disability, I would use the without prejudice uh, approach because that uh, is, is not specifically tied down to what is not protected by without pre- prejudice conversation and without prejudice conversations take the main difference between without prejudice conversations and protected conversations is you have a without prejudice conversation when there is a dispute so if somebody's been a long-term sick and they're going through the sickness procedure if somebody has started a grievance uh, you can have a without prejudice conversation with them about uh, 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 about the, the complaints that they've raised if you don't think they're reasonable. Uh, and also if somebody has started down the disciplinary route. So there has to be a pre-existing dispute on a without prejudice conversation, whereas a protected conversation can just, it could be for. regardless of the reason, it can be had. But they're very slightly different in law. So it's better to use without prejudice, obviously, if there's an existing dispute, and if that dispute is related to long-term sickness, to disability, or any uh, health and safety issues, without prejudice is the way. Protected conversations can be started by an employer or a manager. If you just want to explore... Whether somebody's happy at work or whether somebody is not improving the way you wanted them to, to do, uh, but you haven't started the formal process yet, then a protective conversation—they're all off the record. They should—they can't be used in tribunals unless there is undue pressure put on. And I would say timing is also undue pressure. So, uh, in in the uh, the ACAS uh, guide on this is to give people ten days. To respond to a protected conversation or to respond to a without prejudice conversation. That gives them ample time to consider all the knock on effects all the pros, all the cons, and to discuss it with the representative. The representative may have been at the meeting, of course, but it gives them time to reflect and consider and then come back and say, yes, I'm happy to leave on this termination agreement, or no, I'm not. I want to improve. Let's see how we can do that. Ten days is what the ACAS ACAS guide actually suggests.
0: Right. And that's good to know yes absolutely okay there's, certain, there's certainly um lots and lots in that there's acas obviously acas protocols out there which we can follow but it sounds like you would yeah. need some hr advice along it sounds like this there are a few pitfalls you, you might fall into people might want to do that just before i know we're running out of time um andy but just a couple of things in the chat are protected conversations strictly confidential specifically including the employees speaking to other employees etc
1: you, they they should be. Uh, you should make that point at the beginning. This is a a, a private and confidential uh, discussion between the management and that member of staff, and should not be discussed outside the meeting. Yes, uh, both without prejudice. Obviously, they can discuss it with their reps, and they may want to discuss it with their family for obvious reasons. But it shouldn't be spread amongst the workforce. They are confidential discussions. I've just noticed the other question. Just noting. What about people who have protected characteristics? Are there additional hoops to jump to without without prejudiced conversations? With yes, with protected conversations, there ha- there are because discrimination. And discrimination relates to any of the uh, protected characteristics, not just disability. Uh, so, yes, uh, there are more hoops to jump through with protected conversations than without So you have to be particularly careful if the protected conversation can be seen to be discriminatory. And that's where I would say you need HR advice. Yes, yes. Lovely. One more thing, Andy, then I'm going to let you
0: go. I'm just going... Okay. To um, talking about industrial action. I'm concerned. So, one of the managers put in the chat, I'm concerned about this. If someone just doesn't turn up for work, they could have had an accident. I generally follow up anyone who's not just turned up to check they're okay. So, can you still give them a ring and say, "I I would have expected you, are you okay? And they can say, yes or no, I'm on strike or. should you follow us up or should you not? Us
1: up? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I, I mean that that's that's a pretty good excuse to phone somebody up, <laughs> if, I, <laughs> if I might say. Uh, you know, so it's very clever. But uh, again, they 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 don't have a chance. I mean, the chances are, if 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 you've got. 10 nurses and they're they're all in the RCN and nine of them don't turn in on a strike day, chances are they're on strike and the the one person who does turn up is not on strike. But you, I mean, I'm not one to tell managers what they, uh, well, I I suppose uh, as far as the law is concerned, but at the end of the day, the questions can be asked, but you can't put pressure on and they're not obliged to answer.
0: Okay, I think one of the she just put a qualifying in that's for payment purposes. We just need to know if you know why why you're not why you're absent. But oh,
1: yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, the, the next day, the day after they come back, they should tell you that they've been on strike. Yeah. Okay, so that's how you work it. Yeah,
0: Andy, this yes. is so that has been so useful. Um, if depending on what happens, we might have call you back in to get some more advice, but it's been really, really no, that's fine. I've definitely had my eyes open today and I'm sure (laughs) a lot of the other managers on the call equally will have done. So it's been really useful. You've been really clear and very helpful. So thank you so much and have a good weekend and we'll catch up with you again. Um, Thank you. Pleasure. Thank Thank you. you.
1: Thanks, Louise. Bye. Bye
0: Bye-bye. Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice.